You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Well, according to all the research, commitment is now one of the top phobias listed in Americans, uh, in America that Americans struggle with. So commitment phobia is now an official diagnosis. You can go to WebMD this afternoon if you want and see if you have any of the symptoms. I read a few articles this week that talked about how commitment has almost become a curse word in our culture. Like, especially like Gen Z's are like really afraid of this word. Like, um, it's, you know, we don't want any kind of, there's this overwhelming aversion to being tied down, obligated, restricted in any way. So we don't want to have to commit to things. I was reminded as I was reading about this of a conversation I had with a pastor in Los Angeles last year and a pastor like in our network of churches. And we were talking about church membership and he said that would never work here ever. The concept of church membership. And I said, why? And he said, because People are, are, are fickle and the idea of commitment really, really freaks us out. So he said, you know, that's just that, that would not work here. And so we're seeing more and more of this, uh, flesh out in our culture. The average stay in a marriage right now is seven years. A first marriage, the average stay is seven years. It was eight years last year. Um, COVID really kind of ex- exaggerated that. People get stuck in a house together and they start dropping like flies and divorcing each other. Uh, my grandparents were married for 60 years. Um, you just don't see that hardly anymore. Um, average stay in a job right now is a little less than four years, also declining. My grandfather taught public school for 35 years. Again, who, who does that nowadays? And so what's being compromised, what, what a lot of sociologists are kind of writing about now is what's being compromised when we're unable and unwilling to commit is our ability to be faithful. So we are, we are losing our sense of faithfulness and trustworthiness and loyalty as a virtue in our culture. Um, John Mark Comer, Pastor John Mark Comer says it like this, quote, faithfulness has become like disco. It used to be cool and a few people still do it, but for the most part, it's a thing of the past. So faithfulness as a virtue is something that we're losing as a culture. We want shortcuts, we want quick fixes, we want instant gratification, and if we're not happy with things, then when life gets hard, when people fail us and hurt us, when things are no longer easy, it's become easier than ever, more like acceptable, even in some situations more encouraged than ever before to just bail on your commitments. So I'll find another spouse, I'll find another job, I'll find another church, like you you just go do you, right? And what's crucial for us to realize as disciples of Jesus is that we're not immune to this. So because we're human beings, like all human beings, we are being shaped and formed by the culture and the environment that we live in. And so tragically, we're seeing this lack of faithfulness now play itself out in the life of the church. Two important articles were released last year. Gallup released an article titled, U.S. Church Membership Down Sharply in Past Two Decades. And then the Pew Research Center published this article, quote, in the United States, decline of Christianity continues at rapid pace. Both articles say that roughly 43 to 48 percent of the of United States adults say they are somewhat affiliated with the church. That's down 20 percent from 20 years ago. But probably the, the, the best research on this comes from David Kinneman and his book, Faith for Exiles. Kinneman is the president of Barna Research. 
And in his book, he looks at 18 to 29-year-olds today who grew up in the church, and at least in one point, they claim to be followers of Jesus. And of that age group, let me, let me give you some stats. We'll put this on the screen. Of that age group, he says this, 22% no longer identify as Christian and have completely left the faith and the church. 30% still identify as Christian if you ask them, but are not plugged into a church and basically never attend a church service. And by the way, this is pre-COVID. I mean, COVID still has a lot of implications about this, but this is pre-COVID. 38% still identify as Christian, but only attend a church service maybe once a month. But they don't hold the core beliefs or behaviors associated with being an actual follower of Jesus. So they don't read the Bible. They're not in the scriptures. They don't, they don't, have, they don't pray. What they believe about truth, sexuality, the ethics of politics, all, the, all of that is more shaped by the culture than the scriptures. Then he gets to this last category. He says 10%, 10% are what he calls resilient disciples. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus, those who attend church regularly and engage with the church more than just attending a worship service. They trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. They're committed to Jesus personally and affirm that he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. And they express desires to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. Only 10%, Kinnaman says, are what he calls resilient actual disciples of Jesus. So what all this research is getting at is that there's, there's, there's just something about the soil of our culture. There's something, there's something about the soil of a secular, progressive, post-Christian, individualistic, consumeristic society that is particularly corrosive to faith in Jesus. Let me, let me put it in layman's terms for myself. It's really hard to follow Jesus here. Paul Miller, Jack Miller's son, Paul Miller, in one of my favorite books ever, A Praying Life, Paul Miller says it like this, really quite simply. He says, quote, Contemporary American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to follow Jesus. If you look at other places in the world, especially places where it's illegal to follow Jesus, and people are being physically and violently persecuted for that, the church is booming and growing and thriving in those places. Yet in the American church, we're steadily declining. So in light of all that, here's the, here's the big idea that I want to talk about this morning. It's really simple. We are living in a time of compromise, and the Spirit of God is calling us to faithfulness. That's it. That's all I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the call from Jesus on your life to be faithful to God in a culture that doesn't value faithfulness anymore. And, and so we've been, we've been walking through the fruit of the Spirit, and now we've gotten to this word. Paul says this in Galatians 5.22. Here it is. Here's our theme for the morning. Here's the text. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. This is God's desire for us as a church. If you're, if you're a disciple of Jesus, this is God's desire for your life, that we would be faithful to the way of Jesus in this cultural moment, and we would resist the pressure to, to compromise and conform to the way of the world. And so we need the call to faithfulness now more than ever before. So on that note, here's what I want to do. If that's the big idea, if that's, if that's what I want to put on the table and have us wrestle with, I just want to ask three basic questions to help us get at it, okay? Three basic questions to help us unpack and apply Galatians 5.22. Number one, what is biblical faithfulness? Because if that's what the Spirit wants to grow in us, we probably need to understand what it is. What's this word mean? Number two, what does it look like to be faithful in real time? And then number three, how do we cultivate? 
cultivate a life of faithfulness to God, especially in the face of growing pressure and hostility. Y'all with me? That's what I want to do. All right. Question number one, if you're taking notes, what is biblical faithfulness? What is it? I feel like I say this every week, but this is another one of those kind of church words or Bible words that we're familiar with. We know how to throw it around. We know how to sing about it. Like we did this morning, God is faithful. And, and, and I, I, I think on one level we understand what we're saying, but I think um, I'm not sure we understand the depths of what this word is actually getting at. So the Greek word that Paul uses for faithfulness is the word pistis. you got to kind of be careful when you say it, all right? So uh, it's this word pistis, and it can also be translated faith, uh, trustworthiness, fidelity, dependability. And here's the key idea, okay? This is the word used throughout the Bible to talk about our relational commitment to God and God's relational commitment to us as his people. Every time the Bible talks about you putting your faith in God and being faithful to God, it's not just talking about rules and, and beliefs. But, but biblically speaking, to place your faith in God and be faithful to God is to enter into a committed covenant relationship with God like a marriage. Bib, what, is, what is biblical faithfulness? Well, at the essence of it, at the heart of it, biblical faithfulness is a covenant relationship like a marriage. With God. In fact, all throughout the Bible, this is the image God uses to describe his relationship with us as his people. He describes it as a marriage. I don't have time to get into this, but let me just give you a few verses. Okay. Um, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, God says this, or Isaiah says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. In Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, God says this, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice. In love and compassion, I will betroth you in faithfulness. And you will acknowledge the Lord. These are wedding terms in the Bible. In Ezekiel 16, 8, God says this. I love this. This is powerful. When I passed by and when I looked at you, Israel, and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. God gives himself to us as his people, and God says, you are mine. This is a covenant. This is a marriage that God is entering into with his people. You see this all over Isaiah, Jeremiah, especially the book of Hosea, which we'll get to in a moment. Ultimately, this all points to Jesus who in Ephesians chapter 5 is said to be the husband and the church is his bride. Then you get to Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, and it says that all of redemptive history is going to culminate with a wedding feast with God and his people. And then you get to the last chapter of the whole, of the, of the whole Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The whole biblical story ends with the Spirit of God and the church of God longing for Jesus to return. And you read this verse in verse 17. The Spirit and the bride. That's us. We're the, we're the bride of Christ. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And so it's this image of a bride longing for her husband. This is why Ray Ortland says this, when you read the Bible from start to finish, the image of God as a husband pursuing his bride is the driving theme of the entire biblical story. What is faithfulness? 
This is what it's all about. To be faithful, that what the word actually means, faithfulness is, 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 is to enter into a, a committed covenant relationship with God where He's your God and you are His people. This is literally what the word means. Now, if that's what biblical faithfulness is, if it's us entering into a covenant relationship with God where He's loyal to us and we're loyal to Him, on a practical level then, the second question we have to ask is, okay, what does that look like? What does that actually look like to do this thing called faithfulness? Well, faithfulness in any marriage or covenant relationship is going to require three basic things of us. Okay, faithfulness requires love, it requires trust, and it requires loyalty. So what does biblical faithfulness look like? Well, it looks like covenant love, it looks like covenant trust, and it looks like covenant loyalty. You guys with me? I want to say a brief word about each of those, okay? So now we're just, we're just inside that second question. What does it look like to actually try this on and do it, Okay. First, it's going to look like love. Biblical faithfulness, covenant faithfulness is going to require covenant love. And this is another one of those words, guys, like we just have a ton of confusion and distortion around the word love. We tend to think of love as a noun before we think of it as a verb. In other words, we think of love as a feeling instead of a commitment. And the problem with that is that if love is a feeling, guess what feelings do? Feelings change, right? They go away. They ebb and they flow. Not only that, but the person you marry changes. Tim Keller says this in his book on marriage. I think this is a hilarious line. He says, what happens when you realize that you married a fantasy but got a real person? A sinner who grows warts, gains weight, and gets old. <laughs> like, If love is just a feeling, then what happens when I don't feel it anymore? Like, What happens when I don't feel warm and fuzzy all the time in my marriage? What happens when this person that I'm married to changes and they're not the same person anymore? If love is this passive emotion that I fall into, then I can fall out of it at my convenience whenever I want, right? Thankfully, we have a lot of great theologians to help us think about love in different terms. Great theologians like Boston to remind us that love is more than a feeling. So you have um, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. I want to go there. If you, if you don't want to turn there, you can just look on the screen. 1 John 4, 8 through 10 says this. God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So covenant faithfulness requires covenant love. Well, what's love? John says if you want to understand what covenant love is, you have to look at the God of the Bible, and you have to understand that he is the source, and he's the standard of love. He's the definition of what love is. John, John says God is love, and then he tells us what love does. He defines love as an action. Look, look back at the, leave the verse on the screen for a moment. Look at this. John defines love as something that pursues Okay, God came all the way. He left heaven, came all the way to earth for us. He pursued us. Love is something that sacrifices and dies so that others may live. This is love. And biblical faithfulness requires it. Requires it. Faithfulness in a marriage is going to require mutual pursuit and sacrifice. Men, if you want to stay married, pursue your bride. Right? If you want to stay married, die for her so that she may live. Like, this is, this is just basic, this is, this is covenant faithfulness. 
And this is what it requires of us. It requires this kind of love. The same is true in our relationship with God. To be faithful to God is to pursue him as he's pursued you. To, to be faithful to God, is, as Jesus said, is to, is to die to yourself, right? And to serve him in the ways that he served you, even, even when you don't feel like it. Like you, sometimes you have to just, like sometimes you have to put your body through the motions and give your heart space to catch up. But that's what love does. It's, it's this mysterious mix of delight and duty. So sometimes it's, deli- it's a delight to serve your spouse. Sometimes it's a duty. And love says yes to both, right? This is what covenant love is. Faithfulness is a commitment to love God with your whole being and life. This is what Jesus is getting at when he said the greatest commandment, the summary command of the, the entire Bible is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God wants all of you, all of you, because he's a loving husband. So there's this powerful, this, this, this has blown me away for years now. There's this powerful line at the end of the Song of Songs. By the way, I taught the Song of Songs to a group of single college students one night, and it was the most awkward thing I've ever done. But um, Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, there's this really powerful line where Solomon says this to his wife. Okay, we'll put it on the screen. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Just leave that on the screen for a moment if you don't mind. Clearly, this is talking about the covenant love between a husband and a wife, but look a little closer, okay? Look at this. Solomon calls this strong kind of love that you experience in a marriage, he calls it the very flame of the Lord. So in other words, the burning love you experience in marriage is the embers of a greater fire. Like the reason you feel a burning love for your spouse is because you're made in the image of a God who feels a burning love for his spouse. And the fire that you feel in the marriage is like a flicker and a glow of this, of this bigger fire, which Solomon says is God's love for his bride. And notice that Solomon says that this covenant faithfulness produces a jealous love. Again, like, listen, we're just asking the question, what does faithfulness look like? It looks like jealousy. Did you know that? It looks like a jealous, burning, jealous love. Now, there's a bad kind of jealousy and there's a holy, righteous kind of jealousy. Oprah got these confused a few years ago. Uh, I don't know if you saw the interview with Oprah uh, uh, several years back where she said she could, she was sitting in a church service one day and the guy was talking about how God is jealous and she thought, I could never worship a God who is so petty that he's jealous of me. That he's jealous of me. That's ridiculous. God is not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. He's jealous for you. And this is, this is the covenant love by definition is it, it's jealous for the person that you're in covenant with. Covenant jealousy is why if anybody tries to pursue my wife or touch my wife, I'm going to go to jail, right? Because she's my wife. Like she entered into covenant relationship with me and I want all of her heart. I don't want her to give her heart to anyone else. So I've got this burning, angry, 
protective, fiery thing inside of me that is, that's called jealous love. And here's the thing. If I'm going to be faithful to her, faithfulness requires that of me. This is what faithfulness looks like. And the same is true in our relationship with God. By the way, man, God's jealousy for you is the greatest news on the planet because it's what keeps him coming after you when you want to jump into the arms of other lovers. It's the thing that keeps him running after you and will cause him to sacrifice at nothing to bring you home into his arms where you belong. And so biblical faithfulness looks like us loving God with the same kind of burning, fierce, committed love in response to the way he's loved us. That's what biblical faithfulness looks like. It looks like love. Secondly, it also looks like trusting God with your whole life. It looks like love. It looks like covenant trust. Psalm 62, 8 says this. Trust in God at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. If you're married, think about the covenant you made with your spouse. You made vows and you promised to trust and to remain trustworthy to one another at all times, right? Not just the good times, at all times. So I think about my own vows, right? I, Adam, take you, Carrie, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. We've seen a lot of all that in sickness and in health until death do us part. It's a promise to be trustworthy to one another at all times. To, um, to the, the, good, the good, bad, and the ugly. Like what, what you're saying is I'm trusting that she's not going to leave me or abandon me when I fail and when life gets hard. And I'm trusting that she's going to stay with me and she's going to do the same. She's gonna, I'm counting on her. So in essence, covenant trust, what we're really saying is we're going to depend on each other. That's trust, okay? Trust is not about what you believe. We believe a lot of things. Trust is not about what you believe. Trust has to do with your functional dependence. So here's the deal. It's, it's, I'll speak for myself. It's easy for me to trust and depend on God when things are going well. But if you've lived very long at all, then you know that life is rarely easy. And biblical faithfulness looks like trusting and depending on God, not only when things are sunshiny and good, but especially when things are dark and difficult. And sometimes things are dark. There's dark moments in this life. There's dark seasons in this life. But I don't know of a single day that's not difficult. Amen? I think every day hurts, okay? Um, at least that's my life. You got it's, Life is stressful and exhausting, and it hurts. Marriage, parenting, work, paying bills, people, like, and I'm one of them. Conflict. Being confronted with physical and emotional limits. This is stressful. This is hard. This is painful. And it's every day. So here's the application question for us then. In the day-to-day -day stuff, on a functional level, where is my trust? The question is not, what do I say I believe? Because we'll say all day long that we believe God is good. He satisfies the longings of the heart. He's my savior. He's forgiven me. I know all the right answers. But, but saying what you believe and functional trust are two different things. On a functional level in the day-to-day -day stuff of life, what do I look to and put my trust in to help me function and cope with my life? Like, where do you go when you're tired, stressed, anxious, alone,
What do you depend on and use to medicate, to escape, to numb? Food, drink, games, clothing, money, sex, family, friends, Netflix, the church, religious stuff. All these are good gifts from a good God that are meant to draw us into deeper fellowship with him. But if we put our trust in the gifts instead of the giver, the giver we, we, we break covenant with God. And faithfulness, just like in a marriage, calls us to trust in him at all times. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So biblical faithfulness looks like trust, covenant, functional trust. It looks like loving God with your whole being. It looks like trusting God at all times. Lastly, biblical faithfulness looks like a life of loyalty. Okay, let me say a couple things on this. Again, this is what spouses are promising to one another um, in a marriage covenant. And all throughout the Bible, God promises that he's going to be loyal to us. And he's going to be loyal to the covenant that he's made with us. We get these promises, right, throughout the scriptures. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Fear not, for I am with you. I'm not, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not gonna, you don't have to be afraid of my abandonment. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to be here with you. And the Spirit wants to produce in us a covenant loyalty to God in the same way that he is loyal to us. This is really challenging because things have shifted in American culture and now disciples of Jesus are being persecuted and pressured in a way that we really, we really never have been in American culture and our loyalty is being tested. Your loyalty, my loyalty is being tested. Uh, John Tyson says it like this, quote, We're in a moment right now where the loyalty of God's people is being tested like we haven't seen in our nation's history. There are many things in our culture that are being declared as normal, but I want you to see this. Normal is not neutral. Every vision, every ideology that is put forth is making claims on your allegiance and is making power claims on how people should think, live, and what people should value. So we need to look through our lives and find areas where we are being pushed by our culture in our time to compromise and conform. Um, I read an article posted in Time Magazine. This is Time Magazine, okay? This is not written by a Christian. And uh, it's a few years old now, but it's even more relevant today than it was a few years ago. Here's a, it's, t- it's titled, Regular Christians Are No Longer Welcome in American Culture. And here's a quote. It's lengthy, but lean in, okay? It says, some of the faithful, notice that language, some of the faithful have paid unexpected prices for their beliefs lately. The teacher in New Jersey suspended for giving a student a Bible. The football coach in Washington placed on leave for saying a prayer on the field at the end of a game. The fire chief in Atlanta fired for self-publishing a book defending Christian moral teaching. The Marine court-martialed for pasting a Bible verse above her desk. And other examples of the new intolerance. Anti-Christian activists hurl smears like bigot and hater at Americans who hold traditional beliefs about marriage and accuse anti-abortion Christians of waging a supposed war on women. It goes on to say this, quote, Some Christian institutions face pressure to conform to secularist ideology or else. Flagship evangelical schools like Gordon College in Massachusetts and King's College in New York have had their accreditation questioned. Some secularists argue that Christian schools don't deserve accreditation, period. Activists have targeted homeschooling for being a Christian thing. Atheist Richard Dawkins and others have called it tantamount to child abuse. Dawkins said if you teach your kid the Bible, that's child abuse. Student groups like InterVarsity have been kicked off campuses. 
Christian charities, including abortion agencies, Catholic hospitals, and crisis pregnancy centers, have become objects of attack. What's a tolerant American to do? I appreciate that question. Um, The article goes on to call this, quote, an insidious intolerance, which is true. And so in a culture that claims to value tolerance, what's a tolerant American to do about this insidious intolerance? It's a helpful question. Here's the real question, though. The real question is, what's an authentic follower of Jesus to do? Because, like, I mean, like, what are, what are you and I going to do in the face of this cultural pressure? By the way, not like fight back. We're not, we're not going to war with culture here. God's, God calls us to put a redemptive dent into culture, not throw grenades at culture, right? That's not what we're doing here. We're, we're part of the problem. We, we are culture. Like, we're, we're shaping it, right? But, but, but seriously, what are, what are authentic disciples of Jesus to do in this cultural moment? How are we to respond? What are you going to do when your name and reputation are in jeopardy over your beliefs? What, when people are threatening to abandon their friendship with you, when you're insulted and labeled as a hater and a bigot and a regressive, unenlightened person because you follow the way of Jesus according to Scripture, when you're in danger of losing your job, what are you going to do? Or what are you going to do when the pressures are coming from within your own soul, right? Like the pressures are not coming from the outside, but they're coming from within you because your own desires and opinions don't line up with what God says in his word. It's like, you know, was it, was it Mark Twain who said, like, I've never had a problem understanding the Bible. It's, it's just, there's just a lot of stuff in it that I don't like. That's, the, that's, that's, the, that's my problem with it. Well, me too, Mark. Like, I, I totally understand that. It confronts a lot of stuff in me. So what happens whenever it's like, I don't, I don't really like what it says about this. I, I value this thing over this thing. You're going to do a Thomas Jefferson on it where you just cut out the parts that you don't like, the parts that get you into trouble? Like, what are, what are we going to do? Because the pressure's coming if you haven't felt it already. Martin Luther said this, when the, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is tested. So biblical faithfulness looks like Resisting the pressure to compromise and maintaining covenant loyalty, even if it costs you your life, the way it did many of the prophets, many of the apostles in the Old and New Testament, the way it has countless followers of Jesus throughout church history and today. Jesus says this in Matthew twenty four thirteen: The one who stands firm, another way to translate that is the one who remains faithful to the end will be saved. This is a call to biblical faithfulness, which shows up as loyalty in the places of pressure. All that brings us to our last question, okay? If biblical faithfulness is you entering into a covenant relationship with God, and if what that faithfulness looks like is I'm going to love God with my whole being, I'm going to trust God at all times, and I'm going to remain loyal to God with my whole life, that's a pretty tall order. So the last question we have to ask is, How do you cultivate a soil in your life where this kind of faithfulness can grow? Remember, the point of this sermon is not go out, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, grit your teeth, white knuckle this thing, and just try really hard to be faithful. Good luck with that, okay? Because if you try to do this on willpower alone, you're never going to make it. Paul's point is faithfulness is a fruit that the Spirit has to grow in you. But, But like we've been saying every week, 
our, we're, we, we, can, we can play the role of good gardeners here, right? Who cultivate a hospitable environment for the Holy Spirit to work and to grow and produce this kind of, like a good farmer doesn't sit back and smoke cigarettes and just like say, this stuff's going to grow if I do nothing, right? He works in the soil. He tends to the stuff and then he trusts God to bring the rain and bring the growth, So how do we work with the Spirit of God to cultivate an environment where faithfulness can grow? I want to just give you three quick rhythms, all right, to build into your life, and we're done. Here's the first. If we're going to cultivate a space where faithfulness can grow, we have to be a people who are rooted in the Scriptures. There's no way around this. Psalm 1 is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. You see this image of a beautiful tree that's always green, always bearing fruit, and it's flourishing in the middle of a desert, where trees don't, trees don't survive, much less thrive in the desert. It's barren, water is scarce, the conditions are harsh, and yet right here in Psalm 1, you have a tree that's found some water, and it's evergreen, which means it's resilient, and it's always producing fruit. And the psalmist's whole point is, the one who roots himself or herself in Scripture is like this tree rooted in streams of water in the desert. Not only will you survive the harsh conditions of this culture, you'll thrive in it. You'll be evergreen. You'll, you'll be resilient. You'll bear much fruit. You'll flourish. Here's the thing. Culture is a formation machine. And we're being pumped through it. And it's not neutral. So to resist it, you can't be passive. You have to engage in counterformation, which means you have to anchor yourself in a different story. You have to saturate the roots of your life in God's story. Or else, let me listen, if you don't, it's not a matter of, of, of if. It's a matter of when you get swept up into the cultural narratives and the other stories that are being fed to us all day long. So like, that's the enemy's MO, right? When he comes to us, he spins a different story. You see that in the garden in Genesis 3, he tells a different, he tells a lie. He tells a different story. So if we're going to survive, we've got to anchor ourselves in the scriptures. Uh, Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you want to be faithful, you have to hide God's word in your heart. How do you do that? Well, I mean, you just read it. Like, I don't really know how to... It's, it's kind of one of those things where it's not rocket science. Nobody has to teach you how to eat or consume. And so you just eat this. You just... You read it. You read it daily. You read it with Jesus. You meditate on it. You memorize it. You just you just consume it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.3, um, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. He's talking about church people. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We're living in that time. Pressure is thick. The heat is on. Cancel culture is coming for you if you're a disciple of Jesus. And by the way, cancel culture needs to cancel some stuff. I'm glad some things get shut down. But like, it's coming for it. It's coming for you. Don't compromise. Be faithful. In, in the words of 2 Timothy 3.16, let God's word teach you, rebuke you, correct you, train you in righteousness. Let it mess with you. Let it jack with you. Let it answer your questions and question your answers. Let God's word shape you into alignment with reality according to God's creation and his design and his vision for how he says that life works best. I'll say it this way. The goal is not, we're not worshiping the Bible, we're worshiping Jesus. And the goal as disciples of Jesus is to have the same relationship to the Bible that Jesus had. 
And Jesus lived a life rooted in the scriptures. He read it. He loved it. He followed it. He trusted in it. This is, this is, how, this is, this is how you cultivate a space where faithfulness can grow. Second, if we're going to cultivate that space where faithfulness can grow, we have to live a life of confession and repentance. Repentance literally means to change your mind. It means to turn and go in a different direction. But let me translate it in covenant terms. Repentance in covenant relational terms means you break up with any lover that isn't Jesus. Anything you're giving your heart to, your functional trust to that isn't Jesus, repentance means you end those relationships and you come back home to God. The image is graphic, okay? Uh, It's rated R. It really is. But the Bible describes our sin as spiritual adultery against God, as pursuing other lovers that are idols. You see this all over the scriptures. Jeremiah 3 says this, You have lived as a prostitute. ESV and King King Jimmy use a lot uh, stronger word here. You've lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights and see. Is there any place where you have not been ravished? Strong language. By the roadside, you sat waiting for lovers. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. An idol, just to be clear, by the way, is just anything you attach and give yourself to to be for you what only God can be for you. And so because that's unfaithful to the covenant we have with God, God calls that adultery. The most powerful illustration you see in this in the, in the whole Bible is the story of Hosea. Hosea's wife, Gomer, is essentially, Keller says she's a sex addict. I mean, she can't stop cheating on him with other men. Eventually, she ends up getting herself trafficked off into slavery. And Hosea is this loving, faithful husband who just keeps pursuing her. And the whole point of the story is that Hosea's relationship with Gomer serves as a, a powerful picture of God's relationship with his people. It's a powerful image of what God's love is like, and it's an illustration of what we are like in the flesh. One writer says it like this, quote, We are Gomer. This is not our identity in Jesus. This is in the flesh. We are Gomer. We are spiritual adulterers. We want to have it our way, and we are willing to reject God's covenant faithfulness for fleeting one-night stands with idols. And in Hosea, God is saying when you pursue and build your life on things that aren't him, you're doing the same thing with your soul that Gomer is doing with her body. So you're putting yourself in the arms of other lovers that can't hold you. You're giving your heart to things that make empty promises that will always abandon you. Here's, your idols can never save you. They will only enslave you. They will bait you with empty promises. They will get you hooked and addicted, and you'll end up more empty and more hungry for what only Jesus can give you than you were when you started that relationship with them. And so if we're going to cultivate a soil of faithfulness, we have to get into this rhythm of confession and repentance. And I'll say this, okay, part of confession and repentance means that we have to guard ourselves from tolerating the small stuff. Like, if you're, if, like, it's easy for me to walk out of here and say, well, I'm not really tempted to give in to black tar heroin or like whatever, whatever your version of hard, hard thing is. Like, but what's easy is to let the little stuff in that, that, that gets in as a foothold and then grows into something darker and, and, and more like, you know, life destroying. And so like confession is all consuming. So here's kind of the application here. Maybe this is a moment for you to confess. Like, you know that in your heart you've been tolerating some stuff. 
that doesn't line up with reality of what God says is best for you. It's not pleasing to God. It's not life-giving to you. And, and not only is God inviting you to break up with that thing and come home to him, but his grace and his covenant love is ready to forgive you and cleanse your conscience and heal your soul. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I just want to urge you, if there's any functional trusts, any false gods, any lesser loves that have surfaced, turn away from those things. There's no life there. Come home to Jesus. He has so much mercy for you. His faithfulness will never run out on you. Last thing I want to say here in terms of how to cultivate this environment is you have to structure your life around intimacy and closeness with God. This is at the heart of our covenant with God. It's why Jesus came and died for us. Jesus didn't come and die for us just to justify us so that we can now be declared right. It's like, okay, if I'm, I'm declared righteous, which is amazing, but it's like now he's okay with me, I guess. But it's, it's so much better than that. He's entered into a loving covenant with you, a loving union with you, a marriage relationship with you. And so this is, this is at the very, very heart of our covenant. So, so cultivating faithfulness looks like Structuring your life around staying close to God. Uh, Pastor J.D. Greer says it like this. I think this is hilarious and brilliant. Spiritual fruit, you see, is produced in the same way physical fruit is. When a man and a woman conceive physical fruit, i.e. a child, they're usually not thinking about the mechanics of making that child. (laughs) How do we do this again? Um, Rather, they get caught up in a moment of loving intimacy with one another and the... And the fruit of that loving intimacy is a child. In the same way, spiritual fruit isn't made by focusing on the commands of spiritual growth. But spiritual fruit comes from getting swept up in intimate loving encounters with Jesus Christ. His love is the soil in which all the fruits of the Spirit grow. You structure your life around being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And faithfulness will grow in your heart, and it will bear fruit in your life. To close, uh, let's ruminate on this thought here. G.K. Chesterton once said this, Those who marry the spirit of the age will find themselves widows in the next. If you fall, if you fall in love with the, thing, with the good stuff that God's given us instead of the good God who gave us that stuff, And if you place your functional trust in those things and you marry into those things, those things will abandon you in the next age and you will find yourself alone and widowed when that day comes. But those who marry Jesus will triumph in the end. Listen to this, man. Listen to Revelation 17, 14 says it like this. This is powerful. They, talking about Satan and his demons, will wage war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will triumph over them because He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And look who's with Him. With Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. Like, man, like at the very end of this all, like, don't you want to hear, well, well done, good and faithful servant? Like, let's, don't you want to hear Jesus proclaim those words over you? Like, let's hold fast Let's hold fast to our confession. And let's be faithful to the God who's been faithful to us. And here's the really, 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 really life-changing good news. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2.13. If, really it's when, when we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself.
So if you're in Christ, you're in covenant with a God who is always faithful to you. And his faithfulness and commitment to you is not based on your commitment to him. It's based on Jesus' perfect commitment. And he promises to always be faithful to you. And that, that produces in you a new heart and a new desire to be, to be faithful to him and to follow him faithfully all the way to the end. As we transition to communion, I love how Keller says it like this. He describes communion as this is a time, this is a covenant renewal ceremony. Communion is a time where you're renewing your vows to Jesus. You're reflecting on his faithfulness to you, his pledged trustworthiness and covenant loyalty, and you're, you're responding by renewing your vows. So Keller says it's a time for you to say, I blank take you, Jesus, to be my wedded Savior and Lord. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to give you my all as you have given your all for me. I promise to give myself to you as you have given yourself to me for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and not even death can part us because of what you have done for me, Jesus.